You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. I spent a lot of years going back and forth in Italy to every tiny town to to be as authentic as possible. And I came to see the essential absurdity of trying to reproduce that. But when you learn somebody else's vocabulary, then you decide what are the elements I want to incorporate into mine. That was Corby Kummer, food reporter and senior editor at The Atlantic. I'll be chatting with him later on in the show. But first, it's time to chat with our regular contributor, Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. Dan, how are you? Good, Chris. How are you doing? So what do we got? We got bathrobes at night eating ice cream. We've got breakfast cereal. Uh, What? No, I thought today we would talk about office coffee. Oh. And in particular, free office coffee, the kind of coffee that is supplied by employers in the workplace. That's a great topic. Well, thank you. Do you have free office coffee at Milk Street Kitchen? Of course not. (laughs) So uh, what is your take? Well, so so I, I wanted to explore this because I'm a big free office coffee drinker. And so we did this episode of The Sporkful. We kind of looked into, like, does it make you more productive? Is it worth it for employers to provide it? Mm. And we talked to some experts about it. One thing that I learned is that, you know, it's not just in our heads. Like, I, I feel like if I don't drink coffee, my brain is not operating at full speed. And it turns out that caffeine is a psychostimulant, and it works like other psychostimulants. And it does make you more alert. It doesn't actually give you energy. It more blocks the parts of your brain that make you feel tired. But it does make you more effective as a worker. It's One of the experts I talked to acknowledged that it's essentially a performance-enhancing drug. And and it also puts you in a a better mood. But interestingly, I theorize, and maybe you can run this study at Milk Street, Chris, if caffeine makes you more productive, what if you were to brew your office coffee – extra strong so that your workforce is highly caffeinated, would you get more productivity out of them and therefore you would recoup the cost of the coffee and then some? Well, I haven't introduced you to Kimball's theory of labor. Oh, please tell me. Well, here's what I think. I think that the idea of being more or less productive is nuts because if people are very productive in the morning, they'll slack in the afternoon (laughs) or or they'll take an extra, you know, half hour at lunch. I think Everybody has their certain level of output, and I, I, I don't think you can have a net increase in output. Now, now you may disagree. Well, no, I, actually, I, I do agree, and in fact, there's research that backs you up, because mm. we talked to a behavioral economist as well, and I asked him, you know, does offering free coffee make people work harder? Like, putting aside what the caffeine does to your brain and making you more productive— Will it make people like their jobs more because they're getting this nice perk right. and therefore will they work harder because they appreciate their employer? And he said, not really. Essentially, what he said is what you said, which is hard workers are hard workers right. and incentives, small incentives, don't actually make that much of a difference in terms of increasing productivity. But where they can make a difference, and this is why you might want to up your game at Milk Street, Chris, is <laughs> that... Free office coffee is an effective way to retain the most effective employees. Really? The research shows that those perks are underrated 
by employees. If you hmm. ask them, do you want free office coffee or would you rather us just give you $2 every day? Most people are going to say they want the $2. But when researchers find other ways to ask the same question to really try to put a price tag on that free coffee, it turns out that employees value it very highly. And those free perks make them feel really good about the place that they work. That's uh, that's actually pretty interesting. Well, I have another thought, though. Please, yes. You know, which is, I'm, I'm a contrarian, as other people I, are. I, I'm well aware. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. I go to a place called Pauly's. It's in downtown Boston. And it's an old-fashioned, tiny hole in the wall that sells muffins and bagels and breakfast sandwiches and coffee. And I walk in, and the woman behind the counter says, Hey, sweetie. <laughs> so that, that experience of being greeted by, hey, sweetie, that is worth everything. I see. Or, or Chris, you could just bring that woman on staff. <laughs> well, what, that's true. <laughs> it's true. I, I, I think coffee is a social experience. And so maybe you're right. Maybe in the office, you know, standing around the coffee machine is a good thing. Maybe that's also a, a side benefit, social. It's true. And coffee does make you more social. It, in, it in, improves your sense of well-being. It puts you in a better mood. And actually, there's another way in which it makes you a better worker, which is that research has shown that when people are hungry or tired, they are prone to make decisions that are riskier and more with a view to the short term. If people have just had a good meal, they've had a cup of coffee, they're feeling energetic, they're feeling alert, they are going to view decisions with a longer-term outlook and be less prone to risk. Sounds to me like people on Wall Street should be fed better and drink more coffee because they're, they're not making long-term decisions down there as far as I know. <laughs> that's true. They must be starving. They don't let those people out to eat. They work constantly. That's what it must be. I think that's what it is. Well, Dan, thank you. So the answer is Milk Street ought to shovel out a few dollars a day and serve top-notch coffee to uh, our staff. I'll, I'll come by and test it myself one of these days. Okay, sweetie. <laughs> You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. As always, all of our shows are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Now it's time to take some of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, ready to take calls? I am ready. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? My name is Loretta, and I, I am glad to talk to you because I have a question. Well, <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to answer it. <laughs> Give it a shot. Um, I make crepes a lot. I make some ahead of time. Is there any way that you could actually make the batter ahead of time and freeze it? Well, I'm sitting here with Sarah Moulton, and so the idea that I would answer a question about crepe batter is insane. So what's in crepe batter? I don't know if this is what's in yours, but it's milk, flour, butter, eggs, right? Is that sound That's right? About it. Yeah. Do you put or sugar? Half and half. And half half and half. But but, yeah. but either way, usually that kind of dairy doesn't freeze well, but it must be because of the flour in there that it's sort of stabilized. So yes, you can freeze it. But on the other hand, wouldn't you rather have the actual crepes in the freezer than the batter? Well, I've done that too, but my problem is space. Ah. Uh, and a container of batter that I could really whip up fast and fry takes up a lot less room than a whole plate full of crepes. Well, it sounds like you make a lot of crepes at one fell swoop. But what do you do with them? Do you fill them? Oh, well, uh, yes. They're appetizers. I've made them with chicken. I have, you know, one of those food saver type bags and just put them in boiling water and I don't have to 
cook all the time. You They're can't see Sarah, but Sarah's sitting here with this huge Cheshire Cat smile. Well, You're I am. thrilled. I am. That, that Because I believe anything you put in a tortilla, you can put in a crepe. Yeah. But I do want to say one thing, that when I went to cooking school, we were taught that you couldn't stack crepes because they'd stick together, that you had to put a little piece of wax paper between each one. Mm -hmm. That is a pain to do that. I'm a lazy cook, so I just started stacking them, and I realized that what makes them stick when you refrigerate or freeze them is the butter solidifies. All you have to do is warm them, so you can stack them. Yeah, I don't put paper between them. You don't worry about it. And you're just stacked and ready to roll. And you have a good pan, I assume. Is it an official crepe oh, yeah. pan? Yes, it is. Loretta, you're sp- <laughs> spreading the crepe message. If you have crepes in the freezer or in the fridge, you've got dinner on the table or a good dessert. That's right. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pam Tremblay. Hi, Pam. How can we help you? Well, I was reading a recipe for a coleslaw, and it, one of the ingredients was fish sauce. If I have a recipe that calls for fish sauce and I'm allergic to fish and seafood, what can I use to get the same flavor? Well, I just learned this about a month ago. I was speaking to uh, someone who's a Vietnamese chef, cook, and she said Uh that fish sauce, in fact, is from fish. It's from anchovies that sit in a barrel fermenting for a year. And wow. there's such a thing as a first pressing. Do you know this? Yeah. It's the, of course you do, your ceremony. So you open the spigot at the bottom and get that first stuff out. And it just fermented anchovies. I didn't uh-huh. realize yeah. that. Yeah. And it's in there for depth of flavor and for salt. It's for that umami. It's right. one of those things, you know. Okay. That, I mean, salt is a good thing. Um, okay. And you said it was a coleslaw, huh? Yeah, yeah. it was on the Milk Street. That mailing. was our recipe. Oh, geez. That was a Thai coleslaw that we had with a little fish. Yes, I would it looks say, amazing. It's very good. Well, soy sauce, right? I mean, yeah, I was going to say soy sauce would yeah. be safe. Not Worcestershire. Worcestershire also has fish in it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I can't use that. It's a secret it recipe. So, yeah, I think soy would be good. Or well, you know what a lot of people use is MSG. <gasps> oh, here's another place. Which is umami. Yeah, yeah, maybe a little miso. Yeah, miso would be good. Yeah, miso yeah. is fermented soybean paste and also oh, I has, never thought of that. has umami. I love miso. I'm trying to use it more. I keep it in my fridge. It's just instant depth of flavor. You don't have to add a ton. And the lighter colored stuff is less salty. So that's where I would C- go. Can I just point out, Sarah, you cooked with Jacques Pepin. I did. You went to the CIA. I did. You were close to Julia Child for many years. And now you're on to miso. Does that say something about the culinary world? I think oh, absolutely. We, 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 we've turned a corner. We have more toys to play with. It's so <laughs> great. So. All right. You well, wouldn't know how to spell miso 30 years ago, right? No, okay. no. And I would think it was so you know yeah. different other... But anyway. So soy sauce would work. Um, yeah. All right. Great. Thanks for calling. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I'm going to try that recipe in the next couple of days. It's a great Alrighty. recipe. Thanks. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a pressing culinary question, give us a ring at one 855 bowtie That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us anytime at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Robert Beauregard. I live in Natick, Massachusetts. How are you? I'm great, Chris. Thank you. How can we help you? Recently, I've discovered the joy of eating salmon, eating it every chance I get in restaurants. I'd like to begin cooking salmon at home, but I'm faced with myriad cooking methods, grilling, searing, baking, poaching. Which do you think will start me off on the right foot? There's a recipe I use. You slice some lemons, like in quarter-inch slices, Put them in the bottom of like a 10-inch, 12-inch skillet, some parsley stems, a little white wine, and capers. And then you put the salmon steak or filet on top 
so it's a little bit off the pan. And there's maybe you know a quarter inch of liquid in the pan, half an inch, and then wine. And then uh, you cover it and steam it, essentially, for 10, 11 minutes. We say poach, but it's really steaming. So the fish really isn't in the liquid. And then you can use a pesto or salsa, whatever you want with it. I find that method actually, it's really simple. It's very quick, it's 15 minutes, start to finish. And it's very gentle. If you poach salmon, all the flavor ends up in the liquid, I think. So, and you don't have to heat the grill. That's my favorite. You know, I don't really have a favorite. I I love salmon, but I'm going to say a really simple one, which goes back to James Beard, which is you do it in the oven and you preheat it to the oven to 400 degrees and then you just put the salmon in whatever baking pan and drizzle it with olive oil. I don't know if he used olive oil. He probably would have used butter, don't you think? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you drizzle it with olive oil, squeeze of lemon, salt and pepper and the rule is 10 minutes for every inch of thickness. And that's just a good simple one and you can throw any sauce on it you want. You don't have to think about it. The only trouble with salmon, the good news, bad news, is it has such a high fat content, it will stink up your whole house more than most other fish. So another way you might want to cook it is in an enclosed environment. I think Chris's would be better than mine because you've got it open in the oven. But another one is to cook it in parchment. And they now have these parchment bags where you can put the fish in the bag with whatever flavorings you want. I have one in my last cookbook, which has orange slices, rosemary, serranos, olive oil, a little Mm. bit of orange juice, a little bit of lemon juice. And you throw it all in the bag, and it sort of creates its own sauce while it's cooking. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the real plus is because it's cooked in a bag, your house doesn't stink like fish for days. Well, I think that method may be the winning one because my wife cannot stand the smell of fish. So, well, there you go. Bag. You want to get the ones that aren't bleached. There's a company called Paper Chef. I think they're sold in some stores. You definitely find it online. Well, this is all great. So thank you for your expertise. Okay. Well, good question. We like that question. I'm, I'm using your technique. I like that. <laughs> okay. so, what, what was the name? Paper what? It's time? called Paper Chef. As I said, what I love about bags besides containing the aroma of the fish is you just create your own sauce because nothing goes anywhere in those bags. It's great cleanup, too. So do the little thing at the table. Everyone gets their bag. You take the scissor and you open it. You could do that. Actually, I do four little um, center cut pieces in one bag so that I have more. I don't use up so many bags. And then I just, you can take the whole thing to the table and cut it open at the table and just spoon out the sauce and the fish. Well, Rob, give that a try. All right. Thank you, Chris and Sarah. Thanks for coming. Thank you, Rob. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Milk Street today. And who do I have on the phone? Carolyn Wint. Hi, Carolyn. Out of Elkins, Arkansas. Originally from Chicago. Carolyn, what is your question? I keep trying to make creamed soups. I have tempered. I have done stuff. But then in the end, like if I put the soup back in the refrigerator, it all curdles on me. What kind of dairy are you using? I always use 2%. I can't. Mm. I have a lactose intolerance, and I'm big on milk. I love milk. But I always use 2%. Are your soups thickened before you add the dairy? Yes. They are. Yes. Thickened with what, a roux? I mean, butter and flour? Yeah, I always make a roux. That's what you taught us, Mr. Kimball. <laughs> the roux. Oh, man. It's your fault. <laughs> okay, well, that should work. But let me ask you a question. So the 2% milk, is it that lactate brand that's probably been... No. I can't do that stuff. So it's regular old 2% even though you're lactose intolerant? Yeah, because I don't drink that much of it, but I love my cream soups, and I've strayed away from them because it happens every time. Now, I can have success when I first make them, 
but it, I have to make small amounts because to sit there and put them in my refrigerator or to even freeze them, they don't come back. Are you saying that when you first make them, it's fine, but it's only after you refrigerate them, they separate or curdle? No, not always, oh, because okay. I'm wondering if I didn't temper them properly. And sometimes, you know, I'll thicken up some of those soups with cornstarch if I didn't thicken them up enough or make a good enough roux, or I've added too much water to it. And I'm wondering if that's part of it, too. Because with the cream, I always have to have a little water first in there. I was doing it in the beginning, and then I learned from watching your other shows that, nope, that's what's happening. I'm putting the creamy stuff in too soon. So I started doing the tempering thing. You put the cream in before the cornstarch? No. Okay. Oh, no, no. I'm doing it at the end, but once they cool off, then they, like, separate on me. Why not use much less dairy but use heavy cream? Because that won't curdle. Yeah, I mean, instead of using, let's say, half a cup or 2%, use a small amount of heavy cream. But, quarter cup. Yeah, quarter cup, but that's not going to be a problem. So I, I would... Go to heavy cream, but just use less. You'll end up with the same amount of dairy. And it will give you the flavor yeah. you're looking for because it's just that much more intense. It'll be richer. Yeah. Yeah, 2% milk for a cream soup isn't going to really give you what you want, that velvety uh, taste and texture anyway. Yeah, I try heavy good. cream, just use less. Okay, that sounds good. I'll try that. I've never tried the cream. All right, Carolyn. Thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. Nice talking to you. Great talking to you, I'll be too. watching you. And I'm yes. getting the milk treat. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In just a bit, I chat with Corby Cummer, he's senior editor at The Atlantic Magazine, also acclaimed food writer, about sugar versus fat and how to make the very best cup of coffee. Coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. 
Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like, um... Like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If someone asked me to describe Corby Kummer, I would use the words reporter and journalist before I mention anything about food. Corby likes to get at the truth about things, and unfortunately, the truth is not always in fashion. His groundbreaking piece in 1986 in The Atlantic about pasta tells you pretty much all you need to know. He actually visited pasta factories in both Italy and America and reported on how pasta is made firsthand. I caught up with Corby to get his thoughts on how the world of food has changed since the 1980s. I'm going to give you a compliment, which I I rarely do. I mean, I don't mean just for you, but in general. Your pasta story in The Atlantic, that was seminal. I mean, it was, I, I thought it was the watershed moment in food journalism. I use that term specifically. Not only did you go through the history of pasta, but you went to Italy, you went to pasta factories. You really, you really did it. You didn't just report on it. You actually did it. And that, that seems to me to be a turning point in, in, in food reporting where you actually go and really suss it out like a real reporter. Uh, is that something that's, that you think is still being done well, or was that just a moment in time when, when those kinds of articles were published? I think it is still being done well. And the idea is that you go to find every cook who's completely obsessed with the subject, say pasta. You go to the manufacturers and find out who's doing it the old-fashioned way and, of course, who's doing it the modern, so-called bad way and why. You taste it for yourself. What's the difference? 
You go and talk to cooks. You go to old ladies. You go back and you find who's really doing it, who's living the life of whether it's meat butchering or pasta making or whatever it is, who's completely immersed in it, who are the leaders, who are the followers, and and what can you learn from the people who've blazed the paths and going into history. History in the archives is really the most fun. Yeah, I I think this is the first sentence of the article. The idea that Marco Polo brought pasta from China to Italy is as congenial to Italians as the idea that the hamburger came from Germany is to Americans. Um, I love history as you do, but where we are in the food world now, are people still – because you were just – we were dealing with basic topics back then because people didn't know anything. We know more now. Is it really the same gig or are we on to sort of a different thing or we're interested in different topics? You know, it could be the same gig because I think that those stories are still there to be gotten. Now that everyone is so obsessed with food and when we started and we were really interested in, you know, what is the best egg? But to go and find out what makes a good egg and what makes a more healthful egg and how many days should they be out of the hen? How is it clean? What's it like to hold a chicken in your arms, which I'd never done before the chicken craze? Now there are so many fads to do with food that people are into it. It's kind of a given that people are interested and kind of interested in what's natural and supposedly sustainable or organic more, I think, than they are interested in What's the actual integral quality of this food, which I have to return the compliment and say it's something you have always been concerned with foremost. How do you really cook this? What are its actual properties cooking to make uh, what you want to? Um, Let's talk about your story, uh, The Flaws of Do-Gooder Food Ratings, company called How Good covers more than 170,000 products. Could you just talk about what they were up to, what they are up to, and and what you think of it. So this is just the kind of story that I love doing, which is we all want to buy what's sustainable local and treats its growers well, produces things well, uses the least food miles, all the things that we care about. But how do you actually go out and measure it? So this company started by two really earnest brothers in upstate New York, uh, one has an office in Brooklyn, have developed 43 criteria, you know, which is kind of like Heinz's 57 varieties, you know, like why did it have to be 43? But there it is, on which they judge how well is the labor being treated? How big is the environmental footprint? uh, How carefully sourced are the ingredients? Because anytime you look at trying to understand the supply chain of the ingredients, you know, there are all these big steps that you don't think about that turn out to be really hard. So how good was trying to come up with this rating system? And they were trying to do it in a way that I really respect. And that's what How Good did. It asked the supermarkets to let it put labels right on the shelves instead of saying, oh, you know, there's a barcode and there's a QC code if you if you shine your phone on it. Nobody does it. So How Good decided we're actually going to put our star system right on the shelf system. And what they have to do, because supermarkets do not want the average shopping purchase to go down, so they're terrified of anything that says it could be bad or less good. It's a three-to-one star, and everything is good, even better, and great. In other words, they're not going to say anything is bad. You wrote just a wonderful piece about Carol Field, uh, the author of The Italian Baker, uh, 1985, in Nonna's Kitchen, which is one of my favorite books of all time. And you used this description, care and civility, 
which I thought was really well said. Could you just talk about her a little bit, but about the the notion of taking care and civility? You know, Carol Field came from an extremely literary family. Her father was the chairman of the English department at UC, University of California, Berkeley, and uh, originated the Oxford Companion to American Literature. So she was in this very literate, she herself was this dogged researcher on Italy. We shared a love of Italy and going into the tiniest towns to find the oldest ladies. She wrote a whole book in Nana's Kitchen about old lady cooks. So she was a, a wonderfully intrepid uh, researcher, and nothing would stop her from going to these little towns. But she also had beautiful manners. And when I say manners, I don't think about etiquette books. I think about caring what the other person is thinking and and feeling and trying to be sensitive to their needs and what they're actually thinking about. And you could, you could see it in her writing where she had this imaginative empathy of the women and the most interesting lives. I went over our correspondence when she was writing the book about grandmothers. The women who'd grown up poor or in the war with real deprivation were the ones who interested her most because they were the most ingenious. The best cuisine, as you know from your studies of Southeast Asia and China, always is born of poverty and scarcity. That's where the imagination comes in and the enterprise. She loved it. I have to say I'm optimistic that kind of respectful writing is still there and and will return. But uh, people also have short attention spans, so the kind of narratives that are wonderful to write aren't always the ones that get the most clicks. Um, we're going to transition now to something totally different. You wrote, you wrote a book about coffee, uh, The Joy of Coffee, not too long ago. And uh, how do you make the best cup of coffee? I'm, I'm a fanatic about coffee. I've gone through every possible system. And I do have some conclusions, but let me start with what you think. I think that the thing people get wrong most often is the grind and the proportion of coffee to water, how long the steep or so-called dwell time is, and the temperature of the water. It's often too hot. The grind is often too fine, and so the dwell time is too long, and it extracts bitter and sour substances you don't want. So I like metal filters. I like hand pouring. The idea is to slow down the pour, and it also lessens the temperature. You know, the amount of uh, exposure to air as it comes out of that thing, it's it's lowering the temperature. So I think slow, careful pour, but it's a medium grind that doesn't hold the water too long. If it's too coarse, it drips too fast, and you have a very weak brew. But I like metal filters, a medium fine drip, and like four to five minutes dwell time. Um Paula Wolford's new book, Unforgettable, that was crowdsourced, wasn't it, initially? Yeah, yeah. That just is a very sweet story. Could you just talk about that for a second? So it's a number of people who worked with Paula Wolford, who was kind of the original intrepid, I'm going to write about what it was like to learn from grandmothers and my children's caretakers in Morocco, she really came up with the whole idea of authenticity and completely reproducing a recipe. The cuisine of Southwest France is one of the 20th century's landmark cookbooks because it let you cook exactly as they do in Southwest France. And her obsession with it and her enthusiasm, her unflagging enthusiasm, 
just kept you going. So Unforgettable um, has a sort of double meaning to the name because she now has Alzheimer's, but she's very aware of it and she's combating it. She's trying to make superfoods that are very high in diets or certain essential oils. And she's done an enormous amount to raise consciousness. So some of the people who love her and have been working with her recently have written a book, essentially a biography of her, and they had a Kickstarter campaign to to finance its research, editing, and writing. But the idea that she inspired this kind of love and loyalty among the people who worked with her and cooked from her, I, you know, I find wonderful. If you're just tuning in, I'm chatting with Corby Kummer, food journalist, cookbook author, and restaurant critic. Corby, you just mentioned authenticity, a word I have mixed feelings about. Let me make the case for and against it. Um, uh, for it is... It's really good to be on the ground to understand the context of a recipe. And at Milk Street, we take that very seriously because we get on the ground. On the other hand, the whole notion of trying to reproduce something authentically here, out of context, different ingredients, different culture, seems, you know, it's a nice hobby, but it's sort of absurd. You you can't reproduce it, right? It just, it isn't going to be the same. So how do you feel about you think? I spent a lot of years going back and forth in Italy to every tiny town to to be as authentic as possible. So I loved it. It was the joy of doing that kind of research. I came to see the essential absurdity of trying to reproduce that. In New England, I'll tell you when my, I think my moment of truth was, when I tried to live for two months in February and March cooking only with what was actually local and seasonal. <laughs> And I started to understand, you know, it's ridiculous to do anything but realize here is what New Englanders, I, you know, we're both New Englanders. This is what they had during the year. But what I love is it's kind of like training yourself as an artist. You you learn, or a musician, you learn the rules and then you break them. And so what I liked, or Rick Bayless's book, Authentic Mexican, yeah, of course we're not in Mexico. But when you learn somebody else's vocabulary, then you decide right. what are the elements I want to incorporate into mine. So what's next for us? You know, there was classic American cooking, and then we did classic French cooking with Julia. We did the dinner party, you know, ethnic food thing. Uh, we're now, I think, devolving into tinier and tinier substrata of specialties maybe. Uh, like even in Boston, you know, there was one place that served Oleana that had Turkish cuisine. And now there's a bunch of places you can go to. So w w what's what do the next 10 years look like? You know, I would say incorporating the many varieties of Asian cuisine and that whole palette and vocabulary. I thought it was going to not have legs as a trend. It really has legs. Uh, I resisted fusion cuisine. I was very annoyed by it. And now I just see it everywhere. And I think that home cooks are really interested in it. Uh, it's lighter. It has lots of salt and heat in it. And people are irresistibly drawn to that. I think that Asian sauces and fermented flavors, right. uh, people are going to start to understand that pantry. Yeah, the thing I loved the most when I was in Thailand a few months ago was that MSG is just an ingredient. I mean, it's okay. Like, nobody apologizes for MSG. It makes food taste better. You know, good for you. I really like that. Uh, okay, so what's the book? I know you've been asked this before. What's the book you haven't written you really love to write? Uh, I want to find a way to talk about the passion that brought people like the ones we've been talking about 
Paula Wolford and Carol Field, the generation we learned from, our generation, and the one that I'm incredibly admiring of and and really interested in, which is the people who are in their 30s, say, who are trying to reinvent the food business and have this incredible earnestness about them. What unites those animating passions and what keeps a person wanting to learn and discover throughout their life? And how can you inspire somebody who just wants to be a venture capitalist, say, to think about why food can be a really enriching part of life and how to make it part of life without becoming uh, kind of showy and uh, bragging and too obsessive. So I want to find what are people's uniting passions and how can it become a lifelong practice? Corby Kummer, true believer. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That was Corby Kummer, acclaimed food writer, senior editor at The Atlantic, and professor at Boston University School of Gastronomy. As blogger David Lee once said, writing is about verbs, not adjectives. You know, a good story starts somewhere, it travels a circuitous route, and then it ends up, hopefully, in an unexpected place. The world of food is no exception. In 1980, cooking was dead, convenience was paramount, and nobody was keeping the home fires burning. Yet today, everyone is a foodie, or maybe it's just, as they say in Texas, all hat and no cattle. That's why we need good reporters, to separate food fads from the real thing. And by the way, Corby Kummer is just the guy for the job. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we're headed into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with cooking instructor Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. We're here in the kitchens of Mill Street. You know, back in the late 60s, I was actually in West Africa, Nigeria, briefly, and uh, the street food was fabulous. Meat on skewers is very common. So today we're talking about a very specific recipe from Nigeria called beef suya, which is simple to make, but it's very different than the usual sort of kebabs that we make here, right? Right. So what sets suya apart is really the rub. And it can vary, of course, by household, by region, but there's typically some garlic, some ground ginger, some paprika, and there's almost always ground peanuts. And that's a really common ingredient in Nigerian cooking. So what we did was make a really simple rub in a food processor. So to the spices, to the peanuts, we add a little bit of oil, some brown sugar to sweeten it up, and we just give that a quick buzz, and then we go ahead and build our skewers. So are these kebabs or are these sort of like in Morocco, they have long strips of meat? Yeah, they're a little bit thinner than that. Somewhere in between a satay and a kebab. Uh, We actually used flat iron steak. It's kind of the perfect thickness and really easy to thread on the skewers. And it really cooks evenly on the grill. Like a skirt steak if you can't find flat iron, I assume? Skirt steak would be a great substitute. And this is what on the grill for, what, 10 minutes? I mean, it's pretty quick, right? That's right. But it's a pretty hot grill that you're looking for. And then you pull it off the heat and just add a little bit of fresh lime. You know, so it's so interesting. I mean, in Africa, West Africa, they use peanuts for almost everything. And peanuts as a coating for meat is is really delicious and makes something very special. And it's really, you know, it's street food for the home cook. That's right, Chris. You can find a recipe for beef suya and many other Milk Street recipes at 177milkstreet.com. After the break, more of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. 
When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take some calls with Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready to go? I am very ready, Chris. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Monica Holmes. Hi, Monica Holmes. Hey, Monica. How can we help Hi. Well, I love the magazine, and I wanted to know if I use a cake recipe, like I make a cake from scratch, 
and normally you just put it in your cake pans. Can I use that same kind of recipe to make cupcakes, or would I have to change something? I know the timing would be a little different, but would I have to change anything with the ingredients? I mean, if it was an American layer cake. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, your typical butter, eggs, sugar. Then there's no problem. The question would be if you get into a foamier, more delicate cake. Like I wouldn't do with an angel food cake, for example, because you need the straight sides of the angel food cake pan. But I think an American layer cake, 20 to 30 minutes in muffin tin would work fine or cupcake tin. Yeah, you get about 24 to 36 from your usual cake recipe. I think that would work well. Did you have a particular cake in mind you wanted to turn into cupcakes? I actually, no, I did try one because my son got married in September and I had to make cupcakes for him. And I kind of needed to know then, but I did try a chocolate cake I had and it worked out fine for that one. But a long time ago, it's been quite a while, I had tried a cake and I don't even remember what kind it was, but I had done a, like a white cake. And for some reason, when I made it into cupcakes, it just didn't seem quite right. It kind of like sunk in the middle, so I don't know exactly what I had done wrong. You know, if, if it sinks in the middle, sometimes the oven's so hot that the sides are heated up more than the middle, mm-hmm. and then the center drops. So one thing you might try is 25 degrees lower in the oven, and that tends to solve the problem of a sinking middle, at least in any cake. Okay. But, but I, I don't think you'd have a problem. Any kind of basic layer cake that's very sturdy should not have a problem. I would try a slightly oh. lower oven temperature if that's a problem you're having. Okay. Well, that sounds good. That so, was so, uh, my question. So did you serve cupcakes at the wedding? I did. We had uh, three different kinds. I did a yellow cupcake, the so chocolate, and then the white. And then I had to cut out fondant daisies for the top because that was what the bride wanted. Mm. So Boy, you're serious. I made about 150 cupcakes. Whoa. Wow. Yes. That's labor of love. Yep. Well, that, nice. was, that took quite a while. I've never done – I mean, have you ever done – uh, Sarah, a fondant daisy? No, I have not. That's have you why ever done fondant? In cooking school yeah. a zillion years ago, so I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. Very impressed. Well, you're okay. a pro. Yeah, you are. Man, thanks, Monica. Well, thank you yeah, so much. My okay. pleasure. I appreciate it. Take care. Hi, who do we have in the line? This is Daniela calling from San Diego, California. Hello. Hi. I sent you an email regarding uh, one of your podcasts where you had a caller that called regarding kefir being used for pancakes. And I wrote you saying that you can actually use it. And what I was correcting, Chris's use of calling kefir a fermented grain. So what I wanted to clarify was that it's not a grain. It's actually called a grain based on appearance, not because it is coming like a wheat or a rye or barley or anything like that. Actually, the pH is similar to buttermilk, and regular milk is about six-something. And the difference being is if you make the kefir from whole milk versus low-fat milk, it would be the fat content compared to uh, buttermilk. Well, thank you. You know, I've been married a long time. I have four kids, and I get corrected (laughs) two or three times a day. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I'm still a little baffled about what exactly is kefir. SCOBY is the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. Okay. So in uh, the kefir grain, you have many lactobacillus cultures, numerous yeast cultures. It's a complex that would look like cauliflower that's chopped up, and it's kind of rubbery and chewy. There are polysaccharides in there. 
when it's made, a polysaccharide called kefiran is being released, and that's what gives it the really creamy mouthfeel. And you get this wonderful fermented milk that is very similar to yogurt. I used it for the last two years and all my stuff instead of buying buttermilk. So okay, it's much more convenient. So, <laughs> kefir, yogurt, buttermilk. Concisely, when you have them in the finished state, what's the difference? Aren't they all cultured? Yes. So uh, buttermilk is when you have uh, traditionally when butter was made and you'd shake it up and you'd have the whey that would separate. Now they add actually back some butter fat and there is some lactobacillus cultures. The store-bought kefir, they are conveniently adding powdered cultures so they know exactly what strain they're using and how many colony-forming units they're adding to actually get the precise fermentation. How's that different than buttermilk, then? Buttermilk would not have the yeast in it. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. got it. Got so it. It's, and nor would yogurt. Yeah. Right, so yogurt is also lactobacillus, right. but in kefir you have the fizzy mouthfeel because you're getting some CO2 from the yeast got fermenting got it. your lactose. Daniela, you want a job? Because <laughs> that was the best explanation I've yeah. ever heard. That yes. was good. Okay. Yeah, that was very good. Yeah. Daniela, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, take care. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking question answered, give us a call anytime. 1-855-4-BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Pat from Stoughton, Massachusetts. How can we help you? Well, my question has been for a long time, how do I accurately measure thick ingredients like peanut butter and sour cream? The adjust the cup, the plunger style works fine. Mm -hmm. And Sarah and I are about to get into a huge fight. But if it says half a cup of sour cream, (laughs) it's half a cup. I mean, it's a dry measure. You almost never mm-hmm. see five ounces sour cream or peanut butter or honey. So if it says quarter cup, half a cup, measure it by dry weight. Yeah. And use the adjust the cup, which has a plunger, as you know, and makes it easier to yeah. get it well, out of the cup. I guess with honey and, I mean, but the honey, the adjust a cup thing, I really haven't played with that all that much. Oh, I, I love just, it. I was just doing a cooking class, and we measured two cups of farro, and then you just sort of, you know, press it into the... Um, mm-hmm. It's so yep. cool. But if you're not using one of those and you're just using a regular dry measuring cup, no, actually, Chris, I do agree. You need to spray it or oil it so that you get all the honey out or all the right. peanut butter out or whatever. The thing about liquid yeah. measuring cups is then you don't have it level and you need to no. have it level. So, no, I actually right. agree. No, we're not going to fight. What? Are you disappointed? Yeah, I was. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm ready for. <laughs> I'm fight. disappointed now. <laughs> Well, well, weights are the best way. Yeah. So if a recipe gives you a weight, then yeah. I would measure it by weight. But if it says a half a cup, then it use says, a dry. Yeah, it I agree. Okay, there we go. That was it? Yeah, that was too easy, wasn't oh, it? Oh, man. Jeez, sorry. <laughs> All right, well, Pat, thank you so much. Best wishes on Milk Street. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Hi, who do we have in the line? Uh, this is Diane. What is your thorny issue today? Well, I tried to make, well, I say galamad, but I know the correct way is calamari. You must be Italian. <laughs> yes, and it comes out rubbery, and I tried a few things, but it still is rubbery. So I've tried to make it in the red sauce, and I've also grilled it, which that wasn't too bad. So you have tips for me? Yes. The general rule about calamari is uh, very quickly or 
for quite a while. So that's just like life. It's <laughs> hot and fast or slow and low. Yeah, no, no, but that's really true. So say you're going to do it on a grill, make sure the grill's really, really hot. And the larger the calamari, the better, I think, you know, because they won't fall through the slats and they won't overcook. And just get it sort of, you know, season it, oil, salt and pepper, get it on and off pretty quickly, like within minutes. And it should be fine. But then, Chris, do you want to take us to the red sauce scenario, well, which is the opposite <clears throat> end of the spectrum? Yeah, I braise, which means in a liquid, but very low and slow. Mm-hmm. And that way the proteins aren't going to seize up and get tough. So. You do it very low heat for a long period of time. At least 30 minutes yeah. and probably two, longer. Two, oh, oh, 30 minutes? I was going to say two hours. Well, no, minutes? and a no. lot longer, a lot longer. Uh, no. Oh, okay. And then until you can cut it easily. So never make it boil, though, just a little <gasps> simmer? No. You know, it's funny because people boil shrimp. I basically am anti-boiling any kind of protein. I think it just turns out like rubber bands. You know, it's chewy. Well, you can poach your chicken. But that's, that's not, not boiling. boiling. No, that's not boiling. That, no, that's right. uh, that kind of intense heat is terrible for any kind of protein. Well, you know, we just tested this. We tested a recipe, I think, with Diane Kennedy in Mexico, mm-hmm. where she was doing a chipotle shrimp dish, mm-hmm. and she cooks the shrimp in the residual heat of the sauce. Always great. It's off heat, and mm-hmm. it's just the hot sauce. The, the heat of the I, sauce. I've done cooks that with it. shrimp myself, yeah. but and you know what? Calamite, I don't. You could actually do that. That would be back to the under two minute rule or under one minute rule, but it wouldn't marry with the sauce the way the braising for right. a couple of hours right. would. So, where did you have the biggest problem with the grilling or with uh, the braising? With the red sauce, the grilling was pretty good. It wasn't as good as I've had it out, but that was very good. But, no, the red sauce was terrible, and I did make it cook for an awful long time. Do you think maybe it did boil? I thought I was simmering it, but it could have probably started at a boil, and then I lowered it. That so, was probably the problem. So I, I won't let it ever boil. Just little simmers, little bu- little bubbles, right? Yes. Okay, thank you very Take much. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. This week's Milk Street Basic is, Would You Like Pepper With That?, You know, we have a national obsession here in America with black peppercorns, which is a bit curious because the world is full of great alternatives. Here are a few we love. White peppercorns, especially the ones used in the Far East, offer a lot of heat, but they're also sharper and cleaner tasting than black peppercorns. Sichuan peppercorns aren't really peppercorns, they're more of a fruit, but they have a warm, earthy flavor But they also provide a quick numbing sensation on the tongue, which sometimes makes foods taste sweeter. Now, darkly colored urfa chilies, they're sold dried and coarsely ground, have a real tobacco, raisiny, chocolatey flavor, and sometimes they're actually used in desserts. Finally, Aleppo pepper, which is no longer harvested from Syria and Aleppo, is strong and works really well with grilled foods, meat, poultry, or even tomato-based recipes. So when a recipe calls for black pepper, be creative and choose just the type of heat that you really want for that recipe. Tuesday night supper can be quick to make, but also a lot more interesting than mac and cheese. Yasmin Khan, who's author of The Saffron Tales, is here to give us a Persian solution to the problem of midweek cooking. Yasmin, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm great. It's, uh, let's say it's Tuesday night at 6 o'clock. You have half an hour or so to put dinner on the table. Uh, What would you do? Well, um, you know, I would always go for a soup, really. And the best thing about making a, a soup is, of course, you know, it's you can make be generous with, with the, the portion sizes and then it kind of you can keep it for later in the week and it also freezes really well. So that's my kind of go-to midweek 
um, dinner. Um, and, in, you know, in Iran, um, actually, soup is a, a major part of the cuisine. Um, the kind of the Farsi word uh, for soup is osh. And uh, our word for kitchen is oshpazi, which means hmm. place where soup is made. And the word for cook is oshpaz, which means soup maker. So it's just very ingrained in Persian culture. So I thought I'd share a soup recipe. Okay. So the recipe that I'm choosing is a hot yogurt and chickpea soup. And it's really easy to make with just kind of store cupboard ingredients. Um, so you kind of start off um, kind of melting some butter and caramelizing some onions. I'm really quite a fanatic about caramelizing onions. I think we talked about it this last time we were on the show and I kind of really think that just taking a bit of time with them um, really sets the base of for this soup's flavor then you add some garlic um, crack open a tin of chickpeas um, add a bit of vegetable or chicken stock and uh, about a cup of pudding rice and you let that all cook together and then you spoon in a few ladles of yogurt you kind of take the, the soup off the pan for this bit because you don't want kind of the, the yogurt to curdle. And you add some kind of fresh herbs of your choice. I like to add some chives or some dill, um, maybe some parsley. And that's it, really. Season with some salt and pepper and uh, just let it kind of simmer away for another five minutes just so the flavors come together. And you have a delicious creamy soup that's you know, dotted with plump chickpeas and um, it's just a really satisfying and comforting midweek meal. And you said you added what kind of rice to it, did you say? Uh, you can use any kind of white rice. I like to use pudding rice. Uh, just now, what does that mean? Uh, so it's a short rice? grain rice. I yeah, see. it's the kind okay. of the English, <laughs> the okay. English kind of phrase. Just any kind of short grain rice works really well okay. for this. Yasmin, thank you so much. Sounds great. And uh, next Tuesday, I'll be making chickpea soup. Thank you. Around 500 BC, Persia was the first world empire, connecting over 40% of the world's population. In the 7th century, Persia, modern-day Iran, was conquered by the Muslims, and then in the 13th century, the Mongols. Today, Iran is a country, it's not an empire. The magic of food is that it transcends time. The glories of ancient Persia come alive when you taste fenugreek or sumac or saffron or maybe a chicken curry with walnuts and pomegranate molasses. The Persian Empire is alive and well, but it's an empire of taste and tradition. That's it for this week. If you missed us, you can listen to Milk Street Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on Spotify. And you can go to 177milkstreet.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugars. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.